This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Steve, at the beginning of this Supreme Court confirmation process, I predicted that it would be somewhat like a John Roberts experience for Brett Kavanaugh. And my oh my, did I have that one wrong? It turned out not to be. What what a debacle! The whole the whole thing, just incredible, incredibly depressing spectacle. Watching it, what I still can't get over is just that the Senate seemed content to railroad the process to an extent where the public was just not comfortable with the speed it was proceeding after the allegations. And then the White House goes out of their way to try to seemingly limit the FBI investigation when it's just in their interest, it's in Brett Kavanaugh's interest, to have it be as thorough as possible. The gaslighting of the country is just incredible. I mean, the investigation was a total sham. We, uh, on the circus, talked to Frank Figlesi, who's the number two in counterintelligence, retired FBI, very senior. He talked about it being a sham investigation. Nobody talked to Kavanaugh. Nobody talked to Dr. Ford. And then the public is told that, hey, it's a full investigation. The agonistas of Jeff Flake, which I just don't understand at any level, he, with his hangdog appearance, sad-eyed, we have to have a full investigation. It's obviously a sham investigation. And then he says, I'm satisfied with the investigation. It's just watching the United States Senate basically as an institution tell the American people down is up and up is down and red is blue and blue is red and the sun can rise in the West and set in the East. It's just shocking and appalling. It's like they don't want to do their jobs anymore. They don't want to do any of the legwork that is necessary to give the public confidence in a process. The whole thing was a debacle. And literally, I think, and I think we should go through them, but the only person that acquitted themselves extremely well in this whole process, I think was Amy Klobuchar. She establish herself as a real star and Democrats would be smart to promote that star. And so wherever you come down on the issue, just Chuck Grassley has been there for 38 years. He, he is, I'm 48 years old. He's been in the United States Senate through all the eighties, all the nineties, all the two thousands, the 2000 and teens. He's been there 38 years. Dianne Feinstein has been up there for 26 years, which means they've served together in a body of 100 people together for 26 years. And this is the outcome of the work product, like the collaboration. They're both pushing 90 years old. Feinstein's running for re-election. And th- this is the outcome of the work product. I mean, holy shit. It's just, it's just astounding. It's, in- it's incredible. And the degree to which Dr. Ford's anonymity was violated, that she was used as a pawn in this process, is just just appalling. Um, the representations made from the beginning of the process about Judge Kavanaugh by Democratic senators was appalling. Uh, his conduct, I think, in the hearing was appalling. 
the Republican side was appalling that, you know, from start to finish, from Cory Booker declaring himself Spartacus, <laughs> what a, a, a carnival of fools uh, with malice intent. It, just an extraordinarily degrading spectacle for the country. I think when the after action report is really written and when everything surrounding this debacle, this tragedy, this horrible chapter in American history, the conduct of Diane Feinstein and how she handled the allegations needs to be put into more focus because something went very, very wrong there. Oh, of course. And you see the human damage from that. The real anxiety, the real suffering. You know, Dr. Ford, um, you know, not somebody who lives her life in the public eye, who tries to come forward with relevant information, the mishandling of that and the spectacle that it produced. And her footnote in history is not something that she or her family wanted. And that was recklessness and incompetence and maybe malice on the part of the majority staff and on, on Feinstein there, you know, the desire to kill Kavanaugh at, at, at all costs. But that's but that's an appalling, appalling part of this, absolutely. And just signifies a process that's broken going back to Robert Bork, is that you've had a 32-year cycle now of really almost Afghan tribal Pashtun-style revenge and retribution and an escalating cycle of political nonsense that has brought us to this low moment for the country. So you have observed the confirmation process more up close than most people in American politics, just given your role in the confirmation process of Justice Alito and Justice Roberts. What could be done to fix the process so that we don't have a debacle that tears the country apart? Well, I mean, the first thing is that there's just such a broad misunderstanding of what the Supreme Court does, what it, what its function is in the American system of, of government. It's not a supra-legislature. It doesn't write laws. It isn't an umpire on a congressional session that says, well, this law should have been A or it should have been B. What the Supreme Court does is it applies a test of constitutionality upon those laws that are passed by Congress. That's the job of the legislature. That's why in America we have 435 members of the House of Representatives from the 50 states. They're sent there on a per-population basis, so big states have more, and each state has two senators who advise and consent in this process. And so when a president sends a Supreme Court pickup, what, what the history of this had always been is that the president's given wide deference, is that presidential elections have consequences. When I was watching the Kagan and Sotomayor hearings back in the day, I was supportive of both of those. I was asked to be uh, because I had led the Roberts and the Alito confirmations. Sotomayor and Kagan were not the choices that I would put forward if I was the president. But of course, I wasn't the president. And the person I worked for lost the presidential election to Barack Obama. And Barack Obama uh, made those appointments, and he had one more legitimate appointment that was denied a vote by an unprecedented act in the United States Senate, which further degraded the comedy and the, and the effectiveness of this. And so what you see in the Congress, first and foremost, is just absolute tribalism, A, and B, 
a a real real disconnect from history and precedent and obligation as these Supreme Court confirmations have just become political warfare of the highest order. And and maybe the issue, at least, is that, you know, these these roles for a lifetime are so powerful that if it if it does make everybody go this crazy, maybe it's evidence that there should be some type of term limit on a Supreme Court seat. Uh, that there should be a constitutional change, that the concentration of power uh, in the individual justices in this partisan age is just is just too much. Well, and you look at the advanced age of some of the Supreme Court justices, and it's a similar problem that we saw on full display with the Senate Judiciary Committee. And with the rapid change of technology and the way that that affects the legal landscape, I am not opposed to term limits for the Supreme Court and certainly not for the Senate, too. I mean, that's just that's we need term limits for the Senate desperately. No, and we we need to see generational change. And it's a conversation that I think makes people uncomfortable. But, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, the country shouldn't be ruled uh, by a bunch of 80 year olds and 90 year olds. And, and fundamental to that is, is the fact that we're not living in some golden age of governance. We, we have a sclerotic, stale, mean, incompetently run institution up there. And so when you, when you take stock of this, the FBI's integrity is damaged by the end with the sham investigation that they're ordered to do. I mean, the FBI played the role of the patsy in this. The Senate Judiciary Committee conveyed as a joke across the country. I mean, the entire country watched this. Uh, Super Bowl-level ratings. I was on a plane, every screen on the plane. Everybody was watching this. And and literally, and I, I have, you, you had no idea, you know, are you looking at a Republican? Are you looking at a Democrat watching it on the plane? I mean, everybody was just shaking their head. I um, cried my eyes out. It was such an emotional day. I cried listening to Dr. Ford, and then I cried listening to Brett, too. You know, there was a certain visceral wound that was opened up within everyone on some level, just watching the pain of two people put forth in front of the country in that position and almost for the amusement on some level of Donald Trump, who probably liked the spectacle of it. No doubt. Um, The chaos, he used it as an opportunity to incite his base and really— what, what you're seeing is the outlines of a cold civil war in yeah. the country. And I agree with that. And it's, and it's dark being, and it's scary. being stoked. And, you know, it was, again, just an, just an appalling moment. And I, and I would say, as you look at the politics, though, of this, is that um, old saying goes, you know, sometimes you win the battle and lose the war. Um, but I have to say that this event, certainly as an imprinting event, um, certainly didn't help the Republican Party in the eyes of young women in the country, uh, college-educated women in in the suburbs. The spectacle, the image of uh, the all-white male side of the Judiciary Committee, old, a lot of them in their 80s. You know, I joked around. It was like the commander's meeting from The Handmaid's Tale. They were just missing the two stars on the sleeve, but the optics of that— extraordinarily bad and when you look at the party in the direction of it you know it's that after you get done antagonizing every latino voter in the country 
every African-American voter, you know, all of the all the women voters, you know, you're starting in a in a pretty, pretty deep hole. And so I think that the electoral consequences of this uh, will be with us for quite some time. These past three weeks have been so difficult because it's been so combative to have a conversation about the issue at hand of sexual assault, these allegations from years ago, a very credible testimony, but there's something about it that's turned it into a third rail of what you can and can't say that I find concerning just because in public discourse, we need to be able to talk openly and freely in order to figure out where we are on an issue. Well, one of the features of this incitement era of politics is this authoritarian strain that exists on both the left and the right, where you're shouted down, where you have opinions that must conform. And the reality is, is that it's an illiberal sentiment. And when you have illiberal sentiments, whether they are from the left or from the right, it adds up to more illiberalism. And in we look around the world and we see the regression of democracy, uh, the strain on democratic norms is that when we shout people down, when we impose speech codes on them, it's not so different than burning a book. And you don't want to live in a country where you can't express an opinion, where you're going to be shouted down, where books are burned. You don't want to live in a country with any of that going on, you want to live in a country where there's freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of religion. And this is this is what is fundamental to the to the United States of America. And so, as we watch this whole sorry spectacle play out, we see all of these strains, not just on the institution, but you know, also on our culture, our political culture in the country that's that's worrying you're exactly right well, there's about a it. strain of hatred that has been there and i knew it was pretty bad but over the past three weeks i guess i realized just how terrible it's gotten just that our political opponents are no longer people we ideologically oppose we also assume the absolute worst yeah the political debate is characterized by its batshit craziness and we're going to have more of it. Is this the cold civil war that you're talking about? Well, there's there's enormous enmity, you know, in the country between people who disagree. There's a survey that was taken back in the 1960s, and it asked, you know, how bothered would you be by a child marrying someone of a different race? People were bothered, different religion. People were bothered, different political party, not so much. You, you fast forward to 2018, they re-ran that survey. You know, people aren't particularly bothered of uh, same sex, different race, different religion, but are acutely bothered by political differences. And so you think about Thanksgiving coming up in the country. I mean, how many people are going to be disinvited from Christmas or Hanukkah celebrations on the basis of what goes on at the, at the Thanksgiving table? The president... Uh, historically, uh, has always tried to be a unifying figure, to, to speak for the country, including the people that didn't vote for him. Uh, 
Trump makes no pretense of it. He's a he's an insider. He's a divider. He is the leader of a faction. And when you think about, well, how do we govern the country? How do we make things work again in America at a political level? I mean, part of it is the ability to show some restraint. That if you have a narrow majority and roughly half the country's with you, or in the case of Trump, let's call it 42% of the country's with you, that you have this narrow majority up there, you don't ram your wish list relentlessly down the throat of the majority of the country uh, and impose from a minority perspective in a fragile majority coalition, you don't jam the agenda and impose it on on the country. And that's that's what you're seeing right now. There's a lack of restraint. There's a lack of ability to compromise, to work together. And so these institutions are failing. I mean, they couldn't be more broken. At a rally in South Haven, Mississippi, which is about an hour away from where I grew up, Donald Trump, after being, quote, restrained, a.k.a was a normal human being and not disgusting and reprehensible in the way he talked about Dr. Christine Blassie Ford, he unleashed at this rally in South Haven, Mississippi, and began directly attacking Dr. Ford. Well, I, it makes you think when you watch this, you know, at what's, what's the cost and when is it too, too high for any of this? To What person would want to subject themselves uh, to this process. And when you think about what it what it takes uh, to go through it, to sit there, it's just simply brutal. And Democrats and, and Republicans, neither side is exempt from it. Um, and so people who are called into public service who serve and have a record that goes back a quarter century where in the public space they've conducted themselves with all the requisite probity and rectitude that you would hope to see that is not something that we see very much out of it, out of this administration is that you know that they have a presumption of innocence in the in the public square and not be subjected you know to a style of to a style of mob justice and that there be some decorum that there be some dignity that there be some protection for Citizens like Dr. Ford, who come forward with serious, incredible information uh, that their life isn't upended because they did their civic duty from their perspective. A brutal, what was most heartbreaking about her testimony process. was hearing how she tried yeah. to come forward so early and not being a politically savvy player because she is not in politics. Nothing happened. Right. And so. How much of this could have been prevented in terms of the public pain that was on display all the past three weeks if the Senate had done their job? Just again, you see a confirmation process that is so profoundly broken, the result of the zero-sum political war that's been raging for 30 years— uh, with some of these people up there in their 80s and 90s who've been involved in it for every moment of it. It's extraordinary to look back at the Anita Hill hearings. You know, I, was, I wasn't a college graduate yet, yet. And, and to see Orrin Hatch and Chuck Grassley uh, sitting up there, it's, in, it's incredible. Well, I went back and listened to some of the audio 
from the Anita Hill, it was just, it's disgusting. It's just cringeworthy, just makes you sick to your stomach all over again. Steve, at the beginning of this process, you said something that was pretty smart. You said that the Democrats would be well served to get this confirmation over in about three days and to get back to focusing on their blue wave. And of course, they did exactly the opposite. And now some Senate seats in red states that were looking like they were going to flip to the Democrats might not be going in their direction anymore. Yeah, of course, this issue polarized the electorate. And so you had this massive enthusiasm gap between Democrats and Republicans, and you've seen it all through these special elections, all all cycles since Trump was elected. But what you're seeing now is, one, the kind of the structural inevitable closing that just happens in October where the race tightens, Republicans come home, but also this surge of intensity off of the Kavanaugh hearing. Now, perversely, I think the side that won, which would be Republicans with regard to Kavanaugh, I think the intensity that comes with losing this fight is the stronger intensity, is the one that endures. And if you look at the significance of the gender gap, the enthusiasm with women right now, I think this is going to accrete to the Democratic Party from an electoral perspective. It's going to, it's going to be good for them. But you do look at some of these Senate seats in red states where this becomes a litmus test issue, is that you have all of the Democrats basically in those Republican states saying, hey, I'm an independent voice. I'm not going up there to agree with Nancy Pelosi. I'm going up there to be a fighter for Tennessee or North Dakota. But all of them caught in the grip of the sentiment inside the Democratic Party had very little room to maneuver. So you saw Joe Manchin take the vote. Manchin, of course, voted for Kavanaugh. That probably effectively ends Patrick Morrissey's campaign in in West Virginia. And you look to see Joe Manchin reelected there. But in Tennessee... In North Dakota, the Democratic candidates who've been running campaigns saying I'm an independent voice behave like all of the other Democrats, right? No distinction between where Bredesen in Tennessee, where Heidkamp in North Dakota would be from, let's say, Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren. No, Bredesen actually said that he would have voted for Kavanaugh and got flack from national Dems. But that was a stance that he had to take in Tennessee if he is going to succeed. And he did it. And so nationally, of course, the activists are really upset. But if they want to win a Senate seat, they should let him do what he needs to do to win in Tennessee. Well, of course, right? And again, it's the it's the imposition of doctrine is that you have to not just be a Democrat in good standing, but you have to believe these very specific things. And there's no room. Uh, to deviate from it. So if the Democratic Party wants to be a political party that can project political power inland uh, into the Mountain West, into uh, the uh, Mid-South, then it has to accommodate uh, people like Bredesen, who was a very popular former governor, very popular former mayor of Nashville. And if there's no room for him in the party, then the Democratic Party is going to behave much like we've seen the Republicans behave over the last 10 years since the rise of the Tea Party movement. Steve and I will be right back with a new look at George Orwell and Winston Churchill in the age of Trump. Audible, because words matter. Welcome back. This is Steve's first edition to the Words Matter Library. 
Steve, you tweeted that you're reading a book by Tom Ricks, who is more well-known for military history, his coverage of the Iraq wars in particular. But this book is about Churchill and Orwell. Tell us why you like this book. Well, first off, I'm a big fan of Tom Ricks, uh, really the preeminent military affairs journalist, I think, of his generation. He's written a lot of books uh, about the wars of our generation, a student of military history. But this book, I think it's very timely. And our podcast, obviously, is called Words Matter. And for those two men, Orwell and Churchill, in defense of liberty, in defense of liberalism, small l liberalism, in defense of truth and democracy, they were very precise in their use of words to craft an argument that was essential at moments in time when liberty was under its gravest threat. But Churchill and Orwell never actually met. They did not. And they were very different men, but each in their own way used words to communicate the vital necessity and maintenance of liberty, freedom, and the threats to it. Orwell saw the danger of totalitarianism, and he wrote great books about it, 1984, animal form that we remember, but he was an essayist who was prolific in his writing, his warnings about how dangerous it is when truth is assaulted, when truth is affronted. And he understood that in a democratic society, our institutions are laid on a foundation of trust and truth, and that without truth, you can't have liberty, you can't have freedom, you can't have democracy. And when we see this president's assault on the truth, these words and what he said stands timeless. And so what Tom Ricks has done here is connected two vitally important defenders of freedom and liberty together, not through the experiences they shared because they didn't, not because of the generation that they grew up in because they didn't, but what connected them was a fidelity to truth and liberty. Steve, 1984 had a resurgence in popularity after Donald Trump won the American presidency. And every week, really every day, multiple lies are told by Donald Trump. And the nature of the lie is an authoritarian. All politicians dissemble, usually a lie of self-interest. I didn't have sex with that woman is obviously the most famous one. Trump's lies are different. They're lies of authority. And George Orwell would have recognized it as the fetish of an autocrat. When Trump, Which he does seem to have a fetish for autocrats. Indeed he does. And, and when Trump lies, it requires somebody to suspend disbelief that if what is true is what the leader says is true or what the leader believes is true is straight out of 1984, where at the end of the book, the protagonist, Winston, is being tortured and interrogated by a party official who holds up four fingers. And he says to Winston, how many fingers am I holding up? And Winston says, I see only four fingers with tears. And the party official says, but it could be three, it could be five, it's whatever the party tells you it is. And so when somebody goes out from a White House podium and says that Trump's crowd size is bigger than Obama's, Understand, stupid though the claim is, it is frightening because 
it suspends the ability of otherwise rational people to think for themselves and to process what is obviously true in front of their face. Certainly the past three weeks seem like they could have been a modern day version of 1984, given how everyone's behaving and the attack on facts that are inconvenient for whatever political side's position that they happen to be pushing. What do you think Orwell and Churchill would have made of these last three weeks? Well, I think they would have been appalled. Churchill had a couple of observations. Um, First was that in a in a democracy, the people get the government they deserve. Uh, he did also observe of of Americans, and he was familiar with our character. Uh, he said that Americans will always do the right thing in the end, though we will wait for the last possible moment to do so. They would have understood that it's a chaotic country, that it's a rough and tumble country, but it certainly wouldn't have looked like the American politics that they were familiar with, where. American leaders conducted themselves with some level of, of dignity and decorum, and we didn't we didn't see very much of that over the course of these uh, over the course of these hearings. And then there's a just a nonsensicalness to like the argumentation. And Susan Collins, I think, broadly falls into this to this category. So she goes on the Senate floor, and she basically says, "Well, I believe Dr. Ford." But I don't believe Dr. Ford has identified Brett Kavanaugh properly. Now, of course, if you are to believe Dr. Ford, which she said it was 100% Brett Kavanaugh who was on top of her laughing inches from her, by what standing and by what logic has Susan Collins employed to reach the conclusion that, well, yes, it happened, but it couldn't possibly be Brett Kavanaugh? That, well, but that's because it became a politically untenable position to hold. And so you see the the mental and verbal gymnastics here exactly. that just make no sense. And what's amazing about it, nobody goes on television sitting there and just says, well, that makes no sense. <laughs> right. It's just it's not it's not. And I'm not taking an issue with the contradiction. What side she she clearly voted for for Judge Kavanaugh. And then this is her rationalization to do so. But I don't understand why there seems to be an unwillingness to just say, but that makes no sense. I mean, this whole notion of, well, I've determined that I believe her, but I'm voting for him. Therefore, it's obviously a case of mistaken identity. And people just nod their heads aimlessly and listlessly like a lemming right back at the senators and say, oh, yes, it makes perfect sense. It's just I don't it's incomprehensible to me that nobody says it makes no sense. How does Tom Ricks address Winston Churchill and how Churchill dealt with being straight with the British public and the world public during World War II? One of the things about Churchill that is that is interesting is that his life spans in consequential ways, much of the early part of the 20th century. But it's in the 1930s when Churchill is a lonely voice, seeing the rise of Nazism and fascism and totalitarianism. And there were no small number of people who looked at the order that had come out of the chaos of German society and were enchanted by Adolf Hitler, enchanted by Nazism, 
that looked at the rallies and looked at the fervor and saw a good thing, saw an economy getting back on its feet. Churchill wasn't one of them. Churchill understood the essential nature of liberty is about man's and women's dignity, and that in free societies, the dignity of the individual is paramount. And so Churchill prophetically saw the storm coming. And of course, Churchill's first collection of the history of World War II is called The Gathering Storm. By his own hand, he saw it. And he understood the threat to liberty. And today, in this country, we should take Trump, in my view, as serious as a heart attack. He is assailing and assaulting our institutions. He does it dishonestly. He lies constantly. And what he is doing is assaulting objective truth in such a way that it undermines our democracy. And it's a dangerous thing. Well, I'm excited that we highlighted a book that deals with why words matter this week, because every day we're reminded that the truth that we tell is very important. And George Orwell, in one of his great quotes, is to see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle. And so when you watch Donald Trump on any given day, his lack of probity and rectitude, his erratic behavior, his meanness, his vileness, in fact... It is what it appears to be. And that was the essential brilliance of Churchill, a lonely and courageous voice who always knew what was coming and saw the tragedy before anybody else did. Steve, thanks so much. One more time, what's the name of the book? Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. By Tom Ricks. By Tom Ricks. I look forward to checking it out myself. Excellent. And here is a special offer for our listeners. If you go to audible.com slash words matter and sign up for a 30-day free trial, you can get Orwell and Churchill for free, or you can text words matter to 500-500. Audible, because words matter. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.